The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is partnered with Red Energy for 100% Australian electricity and gas powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. It is episode 288. I'm Corrie Perkin here with my dear friend Caroline Wilson on a very cold Melbourne morning, Carol. Freezing. Freezing. I feel like it's midwinter. I've, I keep putting away my winter clothes and then I just have to keep getting them out again. The pantyhose, the boots, the jeans, the jumpers. Okay, who else is in this boat last weekend, optimistically, because the wardrobe is so small, I did the old transseasonal shuffle. So all the winter woolies, all the pairs of boots, everything into big plastic tubs. Oh God, that's organised. Oh, well, they're from the bookshop. I don't go out and buy plastic tubs, but we ended up with a whole lot when we closed the shop and everything. Now all the winter wardrobe put away, feeling of incredible relief, laid out all the, colour coordinated all the sunshine clothing. Oh my, are you you inspired by the David Beckham documentary? (laughs) What about his cupboards? What about, what about <coughs> his me. obsession about cleaning the kitchen after everyone's had a meal, including he cannot stand on his table, he cannot stand, stand seeing glass candle holders with black around them from the night, you know, having I know. Had, the, had the... Oh, no, Corrie, it was multi-layered T-shirts that are cantilevered or whatever you call it, so you can see each one. And he opens an immaculate cupboard of shirts, someone's been in here... <laughs> I have never seen a neater wardrobe in my entire life. I think you and I, there's so much to talk about the David Beckham. <laughs> I know. Can we do that next week? I know you have a wonderful uh, French film today on. So Let, let's no, just. I know I'm late to the party with David Beckham, but I only finished no, it. No, we'd nights. like to do that next week. So if anybody, any potties want to feed in over the next few days, we'll, we'll certainly read out your reviews of the Beckham documentary on Netflix. Uh, watch this space. Hello, everybody. Let me just say hello to our sponsors first, Cara, before we get into the weeds. Red Energy for 100% Australian electricity and gas, powered by the Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. And don't forget, speaking of Red Energy, everybody, we are having a big party on the Red Energy rooftop in Cremorne, in Church Street, Richmond, or Cremorne. And it's on Thursday, November the 16th at 5 p.m. It'll go, I guess, Cara, probably 5 till 7 or 7.30. There's a welcome drink, um, bit of, a few bar snacks, and you can watch Cara and I record the podcast with a couple of very special guests. And the first 50 bookings, because we haven't got up to 50 yet, you will receive an Ello Botanicals gift, which is from our wonderful friends at Ello Botanicals. $85 a ticket. Jump on the... Um, don't shoot pod on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, or if you're a bit confused, go into the show notes and just follow the links there to book. I would also like to thank Prince Wine Store, our wonderful sponsors, and of course, Cobram Olive Oil, Mr. Cobram. I think we should have him in one day to have a bit of a chat. We should. We Well, yes, we don't. He's probably too busy picking the olives at this time of year. We certainly don't want to f- offend him again, and we've been having a lot of success with our recipes. In fact, I've got a cracker for you today, Corrie, but that's coming up later. That's great. Carol, we've had a fair bit in the mailbag. Firstly, um, we 
had minimal, uh, I thought we would probably have more responses to yours and my discussion about the voice to parliament referendum, which of course was defeated nearly two weeks ago now. And we had uh, some feedback from Maureen. Hi, Maureen. And although maybe she's not listening anymore. And she said, you have lost a listener. No problem with recognition of Aboriginal people. However, do not want to change the constitution. Over 60% of the population agree. End of story. By the way, I am not an uneducated dinosaur. This is confusing, Cara, because when we read this, you and I wondered, did we actually, I don't think we actually said that people who voted no were uneducated dinosaurs. No, no. Although, and and I'm not. I still. I would never say that. Actually, I'm still not saying that. But but it is true that a lot of people I know who voted no said they voted no because they didn't understand the question or they didn't understand what they were voting for, which I think is a real pity on both sides. Mm. To be honest, well, Maureen, that's our view. We've always stated that we were. She's not listening anymore. She's. She's oh, left us. I reckon she will. Do you think she'll come back? I reckon. I think, Maureen, you'll give us another chance. We can't all agree on everything. And it was, yeah, look, look, clearly it was a divisive and difficult time. It remains difficult. And I don't think it is end of story. I mean, I've just spoken to, it's the end of story for a referendum on um, an Indigenous voice to Parliament and in recognition of First Nations of Indigenous people in the Constitution, which is a great tragedy, I think. Um, but talking to people I know who were really, really in, invested in this decision, and, and, and I, I felt pretty invested, but I don't – no, I did feel invested, and I still find it difficult talking to people who voted no, I've got to be honest, but and, and trying to understand why they voted no. But talking to – Friends of mine who were Indigenous, and obviously most of the Indigenous people I know, I know through um, my beat, AFL football, it's been just a terrible time for them. Um, I've had calls unreturned for more than a week because people have been struggling so much. There's a feeling of um, mistrust with the people who look around them. They, they look at the bit raw numbers, the statistics, and... Um, women footballers, I guess, AFLW footballers, look around their teams and go, well, did 60% of you, say a team of 22, did um, 15 or 14 of you not want me recognised in the constitution or my people recognised in the constitution? People who work for AFL clubs and for the AFL are questioning what they're doing. Have they failed? What have they been doing wrong? Um that it, it looks like, and I wrote a story about this a few months ago, that Indigenous numbers coming into the game have been dropping for the last few years, which is a great concern. And this is partly because the NRL have done a very good job in regional Australia. But this year, Corrie, I, I think only four Indigenous Australians will come into the competition via the draft. And really? Thir- and 13 have gone out as a result of retiring or being delisted. So, you know, these these numbers are really concerning. The AFL is aware of what could become a crisis. It's not quite yet a crisis. And I'm, I'm not connecting that to the voice, but I'm saying all of it compounded together has left some pretty disenchanted and very worried people. What, what, is, what is the AFL's review, response to this? Why do they think they must have some on-the-ground facts and figures why... Well, well, I guess the recruiting is so lacklustre. 
COVID, um, clubs, uh, football department spend has been cut. And so um, high players considered more high maintenance clubs aren't going for. Uh, I think the Hawthorne scandal really hurt this hurt hurt this situation really and and I and I think the great, Peter great Volandis, story of yours by the way this week Peter Volandis and the NRL have in regional Australia been, done an incredible job but at junior ranks and in West Australia there's the crisis is particularly bad junior ranks had just aren't as many indigenous Australians coming into the game so clubs are now they all have indigenous liaison officers I think they all should have an indigenous board member well that's what we should be working towards I think there's a, a lot of problems there, but, and and I think that, as, so I'm I'm trying to I'm pro- maybe people will think I'm connecting two things that shouldn't even be connected, but I think in some way they are connected in that those who are devastated by this decision are second guessing everything they do, and I think the AFL, in fairness, I think Andrew Dillon, who went up north for the the big festival that happens every Gama. August. Um, and a lot of football people did go. I think he's aware of this. I think they're looking at bringing back in um, various draft rules um, regarding players coming from outside the system to make it easier to bring bring Indigenous players and, in fact, players from all other areas who aren't sort of white Australians born in this country into um, football teams. And I think that... Um, there's going to be a reshuffle with some senior Indigenous personnel by the clubs and at the AFL to give them different jobs and better jobs and bigger a bigger voice. This is uh, this is such a big this is such a big issue. This is such a big issue. Now, so we know in in remote communities that footy is a go-to game. Kids love doing kick to kick. Football academies have been set up. That wonderful one in West Australia by the former coach um, Jared Neesham. Jared Neesham. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the pod. There's some great work being done. And this, uh, this for me all gets back to what the voice to parliament could have been. It could have been a group of Indigenous folk talking about sporting opportunities with the sports minister or sports bureaucrats or the um, opposition spokesperson for sport and recreation and saying, look, these programs work. We know for a fact that children who become engaged in footy um, go on to uh, to school. They, they have a certain discipline um, in their in their lives, their study. They have a routine. It's all around football, and then whether they emerge from the academies as potential AFL stars, which is, would be great for the replenishing that you're talking about, or whether they just um, come out of there, you know, with a more kind of um, with with a more stable. Um, I guess, focused view of the world and maybe they apply that to their studies. But we know that sport helps kids. It's a no-brainer. But if you have Indigenous folks speaking and chatting, talking with our politicians about these are the sort of programs we know work because we have seen them, then the politicians and the bureaucrats can have a discussion and then they decide what the legislation or what the funding grant or what what should happen next because they're basing it on the conversation. Now, Indigenous leaders have told us that they are very open to having these conversations. They want to continue to have some sort of, um, they want to have an authority figure that can consult with government post-voice defeat. I think there are a number of them, including Thomas Mayo, who was talking quite positively about starting something where, and and I'm sure 
the Albanese government, where it's at right now, will be open to those discussions and, and that kind of consultation. But we did miss a big opportunity, I feel, not just in sport, but in a whole raft of different, I mean, Well, certainly in South Australia, issues. where um, they were introducing a voice to parliament and that was going ahead anyway, all the, the state decisions seem to be being unwound now as a result of the referendum defeat. So it's, um, it's a strange new world. I think we've entered into. But speaking of entering into the world, and on a much happier note, can I just read one? Can I just read one podcast oh, thing? Sorry, Corrie, you've ruined my big moment. No, hang on. <laughs> my big announcement. Um, this is from Michelle Davies on Instagram. Lovely to hear Caro's great review of my cousin Adrian Harlan's book. It is certainly a rollicking story. BTW, Caro, Jimmy Buffett is not going on tour. He died in September. Jimmy Webb. I'm sorry. Did I say Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> I knew, and, but I didn't pick you up. I didn't pick you up. I I, I knew. There were a Jimmy... couple of correspondents. I'm not going to go through the mailbag and shame you, but a couple of people <sighs> did point out that Jimmy Buffett is no longer with us. I, I did know that. And <laughs> if I said Jimmy Buffett, I'm sorry, I clearly did say it. I'm not if I said it, I'm sorry. I meant Jimmy Webb, the brilliant songwriter who wrote MacArthur Park, yep. uh, Galveston, Wichita Alignment. I that hate was... Galveston as a song. Are you joking? No, well, you and I have talked about our feelings about Gene. Uh, Gene. Didn't, uh, you, didn't you what's love... What's his name? Not Gary Puckett. Gene. Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell. <laughs> Corey. Did he... He might have written Where's the Playground, Susie, too. I'm not sure about that. Another great song. Wasn't a great thing, Posh and Beck's schmoozing to Islands in the Stream. Another <laughs> one of my favourites. Anyway, thank you. And I'm sorry, I completely meant... Um, Jimmy Webb, and I'm glad. It's lovely to have heard from Adrian Highland's cousin. Adrian Highland is coming to the Sorrento Writers Festival. That is BTW. BTW, FYI. Um, the other, and, and I talked about it and the way the book presents itself set in the Australian outback. It, it actually, the story moves, I should have said, to a town outside, a small town outside Victoria. That sounds absolutely beautiful and I'd love to know where it's set. But anyway, Corrie, speaking of entering into the world. Oh, yes, drum roll. Big news. Another baby, another grandchild for C. Perkin. Yes. Numero Cinque. Cinque. Number five. Little Cinque. Baby Jack came into the world on Monday. You he were very did. cagey about why you weren't meeting me at yoga or for a walk or for coffee or to discuss the podcast. And then I found out why. Congratulations. Will Thanks. and Lib have had their second child. I, look, it would be lovely to tell everybody I'm racing to Melbourne because Lib's waters have broken, but you have to take your lead from the parents, don't you? And, it, and if certainly in the world of Instagramming and everything, dare not post or dare not tell anybody until oh, the parents give you the okay. Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> post, no. Um, no. Oh, no, there was a saga. This happened to a friend of mine a couple of years ago. So it is a, it is a live issue with grandparents. Just, you know, take the lead from the kids. But uh, look, it, it's been an exhausting, not for me, <laughs> I mean, I am exhausted. Well, you're babysitting, so pretty exhausted. <laughs> but it's been uh, it's been a really beautiful, wonderful week. Uh, baby Jack came into the world at nine o eight a.m. on uh, what morning was it? Monday. Uh, Monday morning. And uh, I went into the hospital. I think at about one or two that afternoon, joined by Lib's mum, the other granny, our friend Jen from Hamilton, and Jen and I uh, have been um, we've. We've led Floss astray 
the, the sibling over the last four days. Jen and I have been sharing the Melbourne house together because we're both regional Victorians. So the family are in the hospital now, hotel, recovering, and we are um, we're causing havoc at home with floss. Just I've got two grannies, and they are complete. We have what? Bluey on. Don't bother eating your dinner if you don't want Feeding to, darling. <laughs> Feeding chips did, did actually happen the other night when I picked her up from daycare. And I said, we're going to have dinner, nothing before dinner. And she just stood by the pantry and pointed at the chip packet. And it was just, okay, fair enough. I mean, really, Caro, what's happened to discipline? So that's my great news. So welcome to the world, Jack William Hutton Carter, you little beauty. And uh, with all your silver hair. And uh, Courtney Jane, our wonderful producer who we just love calling Courtney Jane because it reminds us of our darling Jane, who's no longer with us, but we have Courtney here in her place. Courtney will put a photo of baby Jack on our Instagram account if anybody wants to have a look. But speaking of grandparents, and this is going to be our theme today because there is a new book out, Caro, by our friend Michael Carr Greg called Grandparents. It's just out the last couple of weeks and I've read it yesterday. It's most interesting. But on the grandparent issue... So Mike, just I to interrupt, to... Michael Cargreg is a child psychologist or psychiatrist. Yes, child psychologist, yep. yes, but works with families. So he's really he has a he has a um, a broad uh, you know there's a broad area of his study and research. But um, I'm very interested to know how you are going after your first month as a full time grandmother because you've been a grandmother of little Sunday for a couple of years now. But of course, the family's been in Amsterdam. Now they're back. She's back in your life. And you told me she had a sleepover last night. Yes, I'm fresh from a sleepover with beautiful little Sunday. Um, well, I've, it, less full time than when I've been in Amsterdam, because as you know, I've spent or at various times a month, three weeks and three months over in Amsterdam, where I probably saw a lot more of Sunday than I've seen of her in Australia for some reason. But now we're back to normal life. Now so we're back so to the, normal life. How do life? the grandchildren fit around you? How do you write the Hawthorne, amazing Hawthorne story in The Age yesterday? And do a sleepover with Sunday. Oh, well, yeah, they, they, one came before the other. And that was a story I've been working on since September, just trying to sort of nail down. And um, it, it's still a bit of a saga about Hawthorne settlements with various parties involved in um, that Bin Marta report, um, the cultural review they handled. But anyway, that's another story. No, look, it's been, in fact, Rose said to me, I had no idea you were so busy. I think she thought once the football season ended, I'd be sort of not sitting around. Available for hire. But Sunday's been um, very much in demand. She's been up to Sydney to visit her other grandparents and great-grandmother who was visiting from northern New South Wales, beautiful Margot. She's... Um, just having, she's been, I mean, the, the clericals of moving countries are extraordinary, particularly when you're also pregnant, which my daughter Rose is. And there's been a lot of medicals, a lot of organising referrals and getting new vaccinations. For example, I don't think they do the chickenpox vaccination in Europe. So she's had to catch up on a couple of vaccinations, um, get, getting a new doctor, organising a car, which we sort of helped them do. We, we did a lot of stuff before they came home to give them a smoother landing. But changing countries with a two-year-old and organising daycare. And look, there's been a lot to organise. Can Rose, I ask a really dumb question? Does she have a European passport? She has a Swedish passport and an Australian passport. Okay. Because her fa her grandfather is Swedish and her father is... Irish. Swedish. Oh, sorry. Her well, her sorry. father is Australian. I'm but thinking of Brendan. 
That's the grandfather. Yes. So Rose has an Irish passport yes. due to Brendan's parents. Oscar has an Irish passport, a Swedish passport. And getting passports for babies is not easy. And I think the Swedish one proved the easiest than the rather than a Dutch one. Anyway, look, it was all very complicated. So is she an Australian citizen? Yes. Right. She has an Australian passport. Okay. She got that a while ago. She has three passports and she's... No, two. Oh, two. Swedish and Australian. Yeah, of course. Yes. Sorry, I'm not yes. listening. Clearly, anyway, I, clearly I'm slipping. She's right. a well-travelled little tacker and she's absolutely beautiful. And, yeah, look, it's interesting because we're going to have to sort out. We definitely want to be very hands-on. We certainly want to help. And we had the conversation over in Europe when I was there in June about... Um, maybe a day that Brendan and I, that I could give up each week, give up him obviously, you know, to help look after Sunday. And I was a bit um, dubious about actually offering a day every week and being absolutely beholden to that. And Rose was like, who told, who told you not to, you know, do? you've spoken to someone, haven't you? Well, I said, no, 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 I, I'm just not Might sure. Might have spoken to Corey. <laughs> I can't remember. I'm not a big fan of the... the um the the one you know the organised locked in day no but obviously if you're organising daycare it's good to know particularly if the parents are going to be working and Rose will be back she, she's going on maternity leave very soon but then she'll be back working I, I would imagine probably um, I think she's taken three or six months maternity leave anyway um, and then I was talking to a friend also over in Europe talking about this issue my friend Kate actually and Kate just looked at me and said you've wanted them to come home for so long. I can't believe she actually gave me in her subtle, kind way a bit of a talking to. Does Kate have grandchildren? No, but she said if it was me, I would be so, I'm so envious of you having your grandchild back in, you know, or not envious, but I'm so glad for you and it's what you wanted and, you know, man up basically. (laughs) So, and then I thought, look, that's true. Brendan and I can definitely do a, a day or a night or maybe a day and a night. There are two of us, which, you know, makes it easier so we can share responsibilities. Well, my brother does exactly what you do. He and his wife share the Friday because, well, he's retired. Um, my sister-in-law works Monday to Thursday, I think it is. Anyway, on the Friday, yeah, it must be because on the Friday they kind of job share the gang and they drive down to, they live in Bayside suburbs, they drive down to Mount Martha and do the, they actually start in the morning at 7.30 or 8 and take the kids to school. And they've done that for a couple of years and I think that's incredibly admirable. But, um, and I don't think I'm telling tales. And if my darling nephew Jack is listening, your parents love looking after your kids, Jack. But Steve has said to me, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a pain because there'll be a really good invitation to play golf or something's on or he might be writing a column for somebody and you're locked in, you know, you're locked in. And the, I th- yeah, look, I just think it's really hard to make that decision. I asked Jen this morning as we were having a cup of tea together, what would be your advice to grandparents? And Jen's been pulling the heavy load this week because I've had a couple of things on that I couldn't move. So she's really been in charge of Florence. And Jen said, it's quality, not quantity. And I'm a big believer in that. Not that I'm saying that you're doing quantity with the one day a week or or that you're not doing quality or anything like that. But so many grandparents say, oh, yes, I'll look after the kids and and they're a bit agitated about it. They're not really engaged and the kids are sort of sitting around. They put on bluey and that's the end. That's the start and the beginning of the day. And, And as Jen and I said, they just want to have your time and your energy. And it's that 
it, it, it might be short and sharp and sweet, a bit like you in when you would go to Amsterdam and you'd see Sunday quality time, and those are the memories that they remember. So, of course, when Sunday reconnected with you and Brendan when she came back here to live, she just picked up where she left off because you'd given her quality. Yeah, certainly my mother was like that with because she had four grandchildren in Sydney and three in Melbourne, and she'd go to Sydney and stay for periods of time, like not just two days, but a week or, you know, whatever. And so the Sydney grandchildren love and adore her as much as the Melbourne grandchildren and know her just as well. But mum had Rose every Wednesday night from when I think Rose was in grade four and would pick her up from school and whether it was cello or rowing or tennis or whatever the activity was, Italian, mum would take her to that particular situation um, every I think they had chicken schnitzel every Wednesday night for about 10 years. And I remember picking, coming round before Rose's year 12 Italian exam and it was on a Thursday. So she'd spent Wednesday night at mum's and it was quite poignant because it had been like a lifetime and it was so... The ritual. They, yeah, they had a real little thing, you know, that, that was just... And mum helped in lots of other ways with all the kids in so many different ways. Mm. But, Your you know, mum was an inspiration to me and I told Francesca, who was the first of my children to have children, and I said, I want to do what Julia Wilson did once a week, come around, put the roast in the oven, fold a bit of ironing, pick up someone from school, just to take the pressure off midweek. Because for working mothers yep. and fathers, you get to Wednesday and Thursday and you're going mental. Uh, you know, just one more list from the school, one more lunchbox to pack one more lot of sports clothes to make sure it's all clean. It's just you get to the middle of the, or the end of the week and you're absolutely exhausted. And I thought I could fly in like Mary Poppins until they moved to Ballarat. Yes. Yeah. Makes it a bit... <laughs> I know. No, that is that is. I'm true. not driving. I love them, but I'm not driving up there every Wednesday. No, just South Yarra to Melbourne was definitely a bit easier <laughs> to rectum or whatever it was. But yeah, um, Mum did comment once, why is Rose always the last one to come out of school? Like, I come out at school, gate. why is she always the last? But that that was sort of a treat for everyone. I think rituals certainly are for, really important. Certainly for Rose that, and, and for Mum and for us. So... It was a win-win. Yeah. But, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to set up a regular thing. And as Rose said, look, you know. See how it goes. If you get asked to Buckingham Palace, you know, obviously, you know, you're allowed to cancel. If you go away, you're allowed to cancel. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> nice, Rose. Thanks, heaps. Well, I just see a lot of my friends who have locked into two or three days a week. And um, and and times are, times are tough. Times are tough, especially for young families. And if they're trying to pay off a housing loan or they're trying to save for their first house or second house or or a renovation or just trying to keep, um, you know, the energy bills at bay, there's a lot of pressure on young couples to, uh, to, to continue to work and childcare is expensive. So grandparents, of course, as we know, have become the unpaid help. But at what point do you say, oh, look, I've done all this, you know, I've, and, and how, how do you, is it selfish to say that? That's the big question that I often ask myself. When I say, I can't, and you know, I had the issue with the mermaid party a couple of weeks ago. I just couldn't get the three hours in to get up to the ferry, you know, party, even though I was there for the birthday. And I, you, I, I workshop this with you. I said, I feel so guilty. Like the guilt is crippling because you love the child and the child doesn't understand work commitments. And then is the daughter and the son-in-law, are they a bit cross that you're not there or are they totally cool and relaxed with it? 
it's really hard. Yeah, I, th- I think I also think though that some of my friends' kids make some outrageous demands like, of the like grandparents. What? Well, if I go into specifics, I'll be oh okay, <laughs> be you know. But but I just think do, do your friends listen to the podcast? Well, yeah, well, hopefully. No, I mean, it, look, just a, across the board, you know, I just some, sometimes think, oh, come on, you know, that's just unfair. They, these people, when we're talking about people in from their late 50s to their late 60s, in your and my case, and I just think sometimes there are some outrageous demands. But luckily, I have never received one. And I am, well, oh, look, I had, some, I had so much fun with Sunday. We had good fun in Chemist Warehouse, in Cotton On, Bit of a roam around the shops. Yeah, you take them um, take them with you to do your life stuff. They love it. Mum dropped round for a cup of tea. Um, had a few strategic suggestions about where to place things. No, we had such a good time. It is such a, a good time, and, and I think the key to it Bathing also. Bathing and feeding is so much fun. Going going back to my um, my childhood, um, my mother's um, parents were no longer with us. So, and I was very close to my father's parents who lived around the corner. And the memories I have, particularly with my grandmother, but also with my grandfather, who was a baker, we would often bake in the kitchen. So, you know, clearly, as you tasted my my sponge of a few years ago, it didn't rub off. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that was one, <laughs> one failing yeah, by grandfather. But, but there were there were rituals, and I still remember them. And so, and what I've created, or I'm trying to create with the little kids, is these rituals. So when I go to Ballarat. Hattie is right off the blocks just saying, can we go to um, provincial living for our morning tea? No no Willow and no Max and no Mummy, just you and me. Yep, sure. So provincial living in Ballarat, I know that doesn't sound exciting. It is the best provincial living in Australia. I think it's been voted that. And upstairs, Caro, the entire upstairs is this beautiful cafe. With They make their own cookies and, you know, Everything. It's just beautiful. So we go and do that and Willow, like we all have little rituals and I think these are the things that the children remember and then they look forward to. And so grandparents, that would be my tip if you're about to become a grandparent or even if you live far away from your grandchildren, when you're with them, do something like almost every day, you know, like Pete took Hattie to um, uh, tennis lessons last summer down at the beach she talks about it all the time and he's booked her in and that's their thing. They're going to do that again with the tennis coach. Although I think Pete was telling the tennis coach what to do. Got a bit bossy. <laughs> Checker went down with him one day and said, Mum, he just doesn't shut up to the He keeps telling the tennis coach what to do. But listen, I just want to talk quickly before we move on about the grandparents book by Michael Carr Gregg. Carol, there were lots of really interesting things in this book, but one thing in particular, Michael Carr Gregg refers to this study um, that um, – I think it might have been in the UK, but um, stand corrected or to be corrected on that. In 1955, this research unit tracked 698 babies from their birth right through their lives to now. They're still tracking them, I think. And one of the key protective factors that distinguished the resilient boys and girls from their at-risk peers was this. they had opportunities early on to establish a close bond with Uh, and I'm quoting here from the study, competent, emotionally stable person who was sensitive to their needs. And in the report, in the study, they call them the charismatic adult. This is who you and I are, Carol. We're the charismatic adult. Um, But the presence of grandparents, this study found, helps young people to feel safe, valued and listened to. And also grandparents help children to grow up to be kinder and more empathetic adults. And grandparents, because of their age, their maturity, we've seen it all, we've done it all 
unlike maybe some of the parents, I don't know. It's not to say parents aren't wise, but, um, you know, there's a generational thing there. Grandparents are in a great position to teach grandchildren social and emotional competencies, how to manage their anger, how to resolve the conflicts, how to get on with others, how to solve problems, how to make good decisions. And core ethics can often be established by grandparents. And, you know, when you're a young, like 10 or 11 or 12, and, or maybe even a toddler, and you're arcing up, the grandparent can step in. You don't listen to your mum or your dad necessarily, but your grandparent will say, you know, don't have that cigarette because it'll kill you, and then you, <laughs> whatever it might be. Yeah, no, I get I get it. So I, I just thought that was very interesting. Another interesting thing I found, I'm not sure whether people realise this, I certainly did not, that there is financial su- support available to grandparents via the Grandparent Child Care Benefit. Did you know about that? No. So it's available to grandparents who are, have primary care of, for at least 28% of the time of the child's life and who meet all the other criteria, you know, um, income and residency requirements and all that stuff. Another interesting fact is after a baby is born, men lose an average of 13 minutes sleep per night, women lose an hour. Explains a lot. Um, and um, another interesting thing, because it, it, this book also uh, talks to a number of famous grandpa- grandparents, including Kevin Rudd, who said that he had has played finger puppets via FaceTime with his grandchildren while in an airport lounge, doing all the funny faces. That's impressive. Uh, funny. It's <laughs> impressive. Oh, no, look, I think, and, and I think the activity thing is a good, I mean, I remember, I know Dad certainly took my eldest two to swimming lessons when at the time when you still had to get into the pool when they were that young, you know, they couldn't just, and that's. <laughs> Jen's doing that tomorrow. She pulled the short straw. Oh, look, Dad, Dad loves it. I said, it. get your bikini on, Dal. <laughs> and, and now that Dad's getting older, and he, he speaks very sort of, um, romantically and nostalgically about those years of, you know, in the Rose Street swimming pool, you know, with Rose and how much he, Rose at Rose Street, absolutely loved it. And and I, I look at my sister who's got two grandchildren in Sydney and spends a lot of time with them and they just adore her mm. and they adore their other grandmother too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a, a huge, it's one of life's most rewarding relationships. It sounds like a good book. Yeah, it is. It's I don't a really normally good book. read those books, but I might read that one. Yeah, there, there are a few good tips. And just one other thing too, there's a session, there's a little segment on play. So playing actually, and that's, I think, getting back to what Jen said this morning over the cuppa, it's about the quality, not the quantity. So last night, the three of us played bingo. I said to Jen, I don't know how to play bingo, but we got the hang of it. I've never played bingo. I've realised I've never been in a bingo hall, of course. But, well, maybe that's surprising. Oh, it's, it's great fun. I've never played oh, bingo. Oh, you've missed out. No, you <laughs> so, should so put anyway, it on your bucket list. So, I, so as I was teaching Florence, I was teaching myself. But I think those little game things, even if it's just for 20 minutes, you know, it makes all the difference. So a uh, very good book, Grandparents by Michael Carr, Greg. And on that note, not that that should be a good segue from children to drinking, although Jen and I... I said last night, needing a glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to the cocktail cabinet with Miles Thompson. And here comes the cocktail cabinet. Chink, chink, chink with those glasses. Miles is sitting on top of it and he has a couple of beautiful Australian sparklings in his hand, Caro. Miles, I didn't have a drink for virtually the month of October, full disclosure, um, I had dinner um, the other night with a good friend who wanted to thank me for something and she opened a bottle of champagne. Mm. And if you're going to break um, a fast of, I think it was three and a half weeks, 
a sparkling is the way to do it. Mm, and champagne in particular. Yes. Which but, one? Uh, Pomery. Oh, okay. It was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Nice absolutely kind of beautiful. sort of style champagne. Thanks, Sal. She's right. a Collingwood supporter too. She's still <laughs> celebrating. We were, um, we had mum at three o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock in the afternoon last Monday oh. in the hospital. Oh, uh, of course. And anybody like another glass? And I just went, yes, please. Should <laughs> but, start but, like a business selling, <laughs> selling sparkling and champagne in the... Uh, in in, in hospital, the, the yeah, there ward. should be. It's a great idea, and it's, it's roll meant around to, with a card of. It's it is meant to bring on breast milk as well. That's another story. Oh, there we go. That's that was my excuse more anyway. Re- exactly, more reason to drink it. <laughs> Miles, you've got a couple of really good Australian sparklings, I do. which is perfect, even though it's a chilly, miserable I day. Know, the weather's not quite. We're in spring carnival time. It's time sure. to have a champagne exactly. so, or a sparkling. Sparkling in this case, yeah. So I've got two. I've got, got a really great value one and then something you can sort of splash out on as well. So the first one is the um, Picnic Hanging Rock Sparkling Brute. And it's just a, it's $25. And we actually, we, we sort of do some work with Government House um, here. And, and it's one of their standard sort of pours. So they obviously, they, they support the Victorian. Are you allowed to tell people Well, that? I don't know, actually. You're probably right. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we ha- you we help, can. We help I'm with sure that. We, ha- we assist with their cellar. Yes. No, I mean, yes, you're so allowed somebody to. Somebody has to. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, that's right. No, I don't mean. No, they that. always have had someone. I don't mean Prince Wine Story you're allowed to tell, but are you allowed to reveal what wines are being drunk at yeah, Government well, House? Yeah, Why not? I think that's great. And it's $25 a bottle. Yeah, so it's $25 not as though the governor is... is um, Splashing out. Exactly. exactly right. Misusing the budget. So totally. Super great value. Just that really sort of on that really lovely, clean sort of apple and sort of citrus fruit, really crunchy and fresh. It's all about that sort of like, it's, you know, like fruit driven style. So still lovely fruit on it, but very sort of clean. Um, you know, it doesn't have tons of that super sort of, you know, that we talk about it uh, in sort of champagne, that autolytic, those really super nutty characteristics. It's more about that. Very easy, pleasing, fruit forward, crunchy sort of style sparkling. So, really great sort of crowd pleaser you could have any time. Yeah, fantastic, really fantastic value. We we have it at work. You know, we've supported them with it. Um, you know, one of one of the bosses, Michael, he lives up that way, so he knows them well as well. So, yeah. So it's and is, uh, the, and is the Hanging Rock uh, Winery? Is it is it right near Hanging Rock, or is I'm, it near on the sh- on the hills sure. of Macedon? It's probably Macedon? on the hills of Macedon. I'm not exactly. One hundred percent. Well, I did say it's how beautiful. The picnic, so it's perfect for picnics too. Yeah, anyway. I said when I went to beautiful Bolabek a few weeks ago, in, at the foot of Mount Massenden, um, there's there's so many beautiful vineyards around there now. It's obviously a great wine growing region. It's yeah, it's really sort of sort of taking taking. I mean, it's always been there's always been a focus on it. It's very cold though. That's and it's, yeah. so it's perfect for sparkling because you retain those acidities, which is what you want because you've got to ferment it twice. So you want these really fresh, acidic sort of style base wines to start with. So it's perfect for that. I mean, it is. it can be very, very cool up there. I mean, it can be cold up there. I mean, it can snow up there. It can there, also right? be so, very hot in the scene of bushfires too. Well, that's true too. So so it's really perfect for, you know, and there's some, some really good sort of wines coming out of there, Pinot and Chardonnay in particular, and, and this is a Pinot Chardonnay blend as well, and that's kind of, you know, the classic sort of varietals that you see out of, you know, Champagne, which is the home right. of sparkling. So that's the Hanging Rock Sparkling Brut at $25. Yeah. And what's your second bottle? The other one is called the, the Bellabone, which is, uh, I think it's B-E-L-L-E-B-O-N-E. And this is a project by Natalie Fryer. And Natalie Fryer used to be the winemaker at Jantz 
and she's had a couple of other, I think, Kreglinger as well. So really sort of high profile. Great sparklings. Really great sparklings. And this is her project that she does, and they are absolutely fantastic. This is the 2019 um, vintage, uh, and it's uh, mainly Pinot. And then, so it's, I think it's about 60% Pinot and the rest sort of Chardonnay. It's just this, it's really beautiful. Three years on Lee, so it's starting to look like champagne. It's got this beautiful, like, roasted hazelnuts and kind of ginger and this lovely, lovely dried orange peel and citrus fruit. Sounds like a Christmas cake. Miles. Strawberries and cream. Yeah. But oh. Yeah, it's, it's just. I've just finished Drops of God. Now I understand yeah. what our Kenny Smith, <laughs> our we friend have to workshop, said. We have to workshop the end, though. <laughs> Did you think the end was a bit. Was a bit. Um, I thought it schmalzy. jumped the shark in a few <laughs> moments. Anyway, go ahead, Miles. That hazelnut that got, yeah, it's gets got me. that. Yeah, it's got all that extra. You know, it's it's made like champagne. You know, it's made in the bottle, traditional method. Um, so it, it really looks. You know, it sort of really heads towards that way. So fifty nine dollars, and really for what for that, I think that is just stupendous value for what is probably. You know. I think, you know, we love these wines. I think, you know, it's probably one of Australia's best sort of sparkles. It's a pretty good price. It's what very we, good for what, what it what is. What do we, you and I pay for our favourite Scrabble sparkling, the Clover Hill? Oh, that's... That's, that's like $30, $35, I think. Oh, yeah, the, I think it's a bit more. It for, be, not not yeah, the Blanc de Blanc, the, um, the more upmarket one. Oh, like maybe their vintage? Definitely in the yeah, 40s. Yeah, that's probably in the 40s, 50s. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. so, sorry, where does this, the Bella Bone come so from? Ta- it's Tasmania. Yep, yep. which is a great... Region. Which again, for the same for reason, that wine. really sort of cool climate, perfect for sparkling base. So you know, that's what you know, um, you know, places like Chandon and that were sort of sourcing fruit from Tasmania for sparkling for a long time um, because of that. So it's it's really sort of perfect. It's getting a bit warmer, but it's still still considered pretty pretty cool. So. Two great recommendations. <laughs> Two yeah, really fantastic. So you've got your lovely sort of cheapy, just p- such a great little wine for the money. And then, yeah, you've got something a little bit more premium if you want to splash out. So if you're having a punt at home on the Cox Plate this weekend or indeed over the Spring Racing Carnival, there are Miles's two suggestions. Bellabone, which is one of Natalie Fryer's little babies. The 2019 vintage, Miles. Pinot Intense, I've written here, mm. $59. Or the Hanging Rock Picnic, Sparkling Brute, $25. And Miles, how do potties access this particular, is there an offer? Uh, no, it's not an offer. That we There's have a, a discount. There is a discount. There's the, the uh, don't shoot the messenger discount. So if you jump online um, and, you know, put a couple of these in your cart and put MEWS for messenger, uh, you'll get your 10% discount on, on your cart there. Uh, and these, I'm not sure if both of them, but the Bellbone in particular will be on a, we're going to do a, a sparkling showcase in a couple of weeks after sort of cup day. You're having a champagne evening, aren't well, you? Well, we've, champa- yeah, we've had our champagne night, our annual champagne night, so that was fantastic, about 180 people or something. And you gave us a tiny sip of one at Miss Jane's farewell lunch. Oh, uh, yeah, Pierre Peters. That was beautiful. It's such a good wine. I've bought yeah. that before from Miles. He's talked about that on the program. Yeah, before. yeah, mm. it's fantastic. It's really my Christmas day We just day got wine. some in. Yeah, oh, it's such an amazing wine. Um, yeah, so we've had that champagne and then sort of the last couple of years we've done, you know, about a month or so later, we like to do a little sparkling showcase. So, and it's not just, you know, it's not just, um, uh, Australian, it's, it's, you know, Prosecco, it's Cremont de Loire, Cremont de Bourgogne, stuff from, you know, Italy. So lots of really cool options and, and what maybe we... things you haven't thought about too, from, from some really interesting parts of France in particular. So very cool. What, what date is that? 
Uh, that is the 11th, I think that is. 11th of November. Yeah, so that's the week of cu- the, the Cup Week. And people book yep. or do they just rock up? Uh, yeah, if you jump online, there's a little there's a little events um, part of the of the website that you can go to and the top banner there, and it's got all the events coming up over the next month or so. And I think it's called uh, No Shortage of Sparkle. It'll it'll be up there in a couple of days, I think. I love the sure titles of your t- Yeah. <laughs> You've got to have a bit of fun. Somebody's sitting there in the marketing department going, now what will we call this? Oh, Well, it's normally me. So, Well done, But Miles. I do. I do. Well, that, that was Effie, the store manager. That was actually her idea. I thought it was I thought it was Well, it's great. very nice. Very generous I of you. I can't take to, that one. Very generous of you to do that. Well done, Effie. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. And don't forget princewinestore.com.au to take advantage of all of that information and those offers. Miles, thanks for coming into the Cocktail Cafe. Thanks for having me. BSF now, brought to us by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. Um, Caro, I have a book, and I'm going to keep this brief because we did talk about it a bit the other week when we were talking about invisible women. This is Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life by Anna Funder, the Australian writer. And Anna Funder started working on this book. Um, We know Anna Funder, of course, because she wrote Stasi Land and the Miles Franklin Award-winning All That I Am. And in 2017, she found herself, and I'm not quite sure why, um, she decided to uh, do a deep dive into George Orwell's life and started reading not only every book um, and nonfiction that he had written, but also biographies about him. And he frequently, or bizarrely frequently, returned to domestic chores, domestic drudgery, how messy his house was. Um, how, in his observation, all women love, all women want is good sex and that women can be grubby. And she kept thinking, what on earth has prompted this? Did he have an unfortunate childhood with a really messy, slutty mother? Or, And then he won, she wondered about Eileen, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who is the wife of, or was the wife of um, George Orwell, who tragically died after a botched operation in uh, when she was only 39 just as uh, the Second World War was coming to a conclusion. She died sorry, at 39. Sorry, yeah. Yes. And I think it was 1944, might have been early 1945 when she died. Anyway, um, so so, she, so Anna Funder found herself thinking more and more about this Eileen person and bizarrely finding very, very little information about her, including in the biographies of George Orwell. And there have been probably four main important, you know, significantly important ones have been written by men and they've taken George Orwell's notes and diaries and, like George Orwell did himself, basically ignored Eileen or written her out of the story. We now learn, of course, that Eileen was um, was a writer herself. She was a very talented humanities student at school. She went to university um, to do literature. She dropped out and she ended up, well, after she had met uh, George Orwell, she ended up being his officially his secretary or unofficially his secretary and unofficially his um, muse in a, in a funny sort of way. So, it, for example, with Animal Farm, a lot of the humour in that, which is dark humour, but a lot of the funny lines that the pigs say and so on, apparently that was Eileen sitting up in bed with him, reading his notes saying, what about this, what about this? So a very interesting relationship. And Anna Funder has written a book that I think I said the other day, if I had been a bookseller, I would have initially just put it in, if I hadn't read it, I would have put it into the fiction section because I thought it was a fictionalised account of this life together. And it is in fact largely biographical because it's based on letters that Eileen wrote to friends and family. 
and also what the biographers have found and also what Anna Funder herself has discovered in this kind of six-year mission to put this woman back into the picture. Did it's, they have children? They, they uh, just before Arlene um, went to Newcastle to have this botched operation, which was a hysterectomy, and she was anemic at the time anyway. Um, she suffered for a lot of the last few years of her life of just blood loss. And um, anyway, long story short, she ends up on a bu- going on a bus to have this botched operation because it was cheaper in Newcastle than Harley Street, London. And, but only a few months earlier, they had adopted a little boy together. She was unable to have children. So, and the, and actually her letters and, and, and the way Anna Funder recreates those last few days of Arlene's life and the pain that she's in. And George, oh. George, of course, is a war correspondent, so he's in Europe. It's absolutely devastating reading. But it's just such an interesting story the way she's done it. And she goes back and forward from her imagining of conversations and things that have happened and 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 the real the, the real sort of facts and she allows the reader to draw their own opinion this is not a pretty picture of george orwell that she no, re- she she presents horrific. but it is a really interesting book and um, what i love about it is that the book clubs that we run via zoom looking for new members next year if anybody's looking for a book club on zoom um, the zoom gang are um, they either you know love it or maybe not so keen on the style of it but the conversations have been unbelievable. So it's one of those great book club books. And I also understand, and I have listened to a couple of chapters driving back and forth from the beach, um, it's a, it's an entirely enjoyable experience on Audible. So if people aren't reading into reading books, it's a really wonderful one to listen to. So that is, um, that is Wifedom by Anna Funder. Highly recommend. Now, we are off to the pictures. We are. So I... Um Went. I read a review a couple of weeks ago by David Stratton of a new French comedy. I, yeah, definitely a screwball comedy called Mont Crime, as in crime. Um, the crime is mine is the English title of the movie. It is um, a movie based on a play written in 1934, a French play. It was actually made Hollywood twice, made it into films, once in the 30s, once in the 40s. Um, the first one was, I think, Cross My Heart with Carol Lombard. The second one was True Confession with Betty Hutton. I think the Carol Lombard one, which also had Fred McMurray and John Barrymore in it, was the better film. Don't you think, just off topic or on topic, don't you think Carol Lombard was a wonderful actress? Brilliant comedian. And she died of cancer early, didn't she? Yeah, married she was Clark married Gable. to Clark da- mm. Gable and he never really recovered. Um, she was a, a great um, comedy actor and also a great, great actor, yes. But this is a French, this is set in Paris in 1935. And it's sort of a bit of a Me Too set in the 1930s on the Me Too theme. In the original Hollywood versions, there there is a wife and a husband and the wife is trying to either get a job or write or he's um, an actor. But in this one... The main character is an is an aspiring young actress, and she's living in squalor in a in an apartment they can barely afford, with a female lawyer, a struggling lawyer. Now, in the um, old versions, the lawyer is a man and married to the woman, but in this, they're two young women living together. They have to share a bed because they've got so little money, and they're always having these terrible setbacks. Um, early on in the film, the actress goes to visit a famous director outside of 
Paris. Um, and he makes a pass at her and she rebuts him. And later on, um, the famous director producer is found dead. He's been shot, shot or stabbed, I can't remember. And money has been stolen. And uh, heroin is a prime suspect. She is defended by her flatmate and lawyer. And what happens is just hysterical. It is a screwball comedy. I mean, we're not to take this too seriously, but the themes are absolutely brilliant. David Stratton gave it four and a half stars. Wow. It's a perfect small film. It's not over long. It's a great story. Um, suffice to, I'm not going to tell you whether or not she did it, but but the she, stardom would probably bring them fame and fortune. Yeah. I would imagine. So the the lawyer the lawyer character becomes a famous lawyer. The actress becomes a famous actress and enter the red herring of all red herrings, Isabel Huppert, <laughs> who plays an older and I famous love her. An older and famous actress. Now this it is just look, it's just a beautifully it's a perfect little film. The crime is mine. I urge everyone to go and see it. Isabel Huppert did a, a cameo in Call My Agent. Yes, and she's also in Caravaggio's oh, Shadow. She's yeah, you mentioned that last week. That. So that's Mon Cream and where, or Cram or Crime. I saw, oh, where do we see it? Well, I saw it at the Cinema Como, but I notice it's still on you know, pretty much everywhere, all the palace cinemas. So Great tip. Def, go and now, Caro, we are on to a recipe. You have a ripper. And, of course, this segment is brought to us each week by Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil. This, and there's olive oil in this recipe, don't you worry. Cobram olive oil, extra virgin. I think I used the classic for this particular recipe. This was a recommendation from our friend Kate Johnson, who is a great cook, clearly. And I had seen this recipe, as she did in Good Weekend a little while ago. It's a mushroom comte, like the cheese, and mascarpone, a mascarpone galette. It's basically a mushroom tart. It is so simple to make. It is so delicious. Um, you make your own pastry. I know, I know, but I did. Oh, no, I can do that. I just can't make a sponge. I, <laughs> I hardly ever make my own pastry, but this is a very rustic, yummy recipe. And the pastry, it's sour cream pastry. It involves um, plain flour, a flour, spelt or wholemeal flour, unsalted butter, full fat uh, sour cream, white vinegar and some ice water. Very simple. You make it, you roll it, put it into a ball into the fridge for an hour, then you roll it out. Did you say sour cream pastry? Yep. It's got sour. You know how you can buy that creme pastry mm. with sour cream in it? I, I still think you can make your own. I'm sure you could buy short crust creme pastry, the sour cream one. I'm sure that would work, but it was so easy to make and it really added to the, um, just the rustic sort of, and it was beautiful pastry anyway. The mushroom filling involves porcini mushrooms and also Swiss brown mushrooms, but you can use a mixture of mushrooms and there's a lot of mushrooms. I know mushrooms have had a bit of bad publicity lately, but and I'm oh, we're not, moving on. I'm we, not going to joke about that. No, because we're it's laughing. Not funny. No, no, we are. We are not laughing, and we are big fans of mushrooms. It's but, just not the perfect time of year for them. But the mushrooms, yeah. Well, look. Let's face it. You can still buy them in the greengrocer. I know you're meant to be sort of seasonal, but anyway, the filling. Um, so you're soaking the porcini mushrooms, porcini porcini, your warm butter and the Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil in a frying pan and you cook the Swiss brown mushrooms and then you um, add thyme and garlic 
and the soaked um, the soaked porcini mushrooms. But then there's a bit you put over the pastry before you put the mushrooms on, and that is basically beautiful grated cop day cheese, just one of my favourite cheeses. Um, mascarpone, nutmeg, you mix all that, season it to taste, and you put it on top of the layered pastry and then the mushrooms. The um, Is it rest- sp- it's spreadable or you're crumbling yes. it? Yeah. No, it's spreadable. Mm. It is absolutely delicious. You pinch the pastry around it. There's a bit of um, egg whisk to, you know, put it usually on the outside bit of the pastry. It's on our show notes. How long are you cooking it for? Uh, 40 minutes. Mm. Okay. Sounds and then yum. you allow it to cool and then you... Put it on the table with a beautiful green salad and some lovely homemade tomato chutney, if someone's made some for you or not. And it is Is that the, a Virginia trolling moment if if you have no friends, if you don't have some tomato chutney in your pantry? Probably is, about, actually. like the lemons? It probably is, and it's funny. Where you I, have no friends if you if you don't have any, if you have to buy your own lemons. Yes. And oh, I tell you what, that was probably Latrioli's most talked about moment during her Yes, it was ABC like um, radio career. It was like what's his name with the uh, smashed avocado, yeah, Bernard Salt. <laughs> Bernard Salt. This, this, you know, this sort of philosopher, humanitarian. What is he? He's um. He's a demographer. Demographer, and, and, and he's a eminent, long-time columnist for the Weekend Australian, and he just happened to mention that. Young folk prefer to spend, spend money far on too much money on, on smashed, smashed avocado, avocado for breakfast rather than their housing loan. Every time I order it at a cafe for breakfast, I think about Bernard Salt. But anyway, this is this, the most beautiful recipe, Corrie. And um, you're right. I either have about four different chutneys in my fridge or none. Mm. Must be because you get a lot of them around Christmas. Well, time. also, do you find too? I don't know whether this is particularly a, a male thing. I don't know, but. Every time a Pete cannot walk past a, a village green um, market or a street stall in the main street put on by the lions. Oh, without buying without what? buying without buying a chutney. <laughs> so you can end up with six little chutneys in your fridge with little gingham tops on them, and six months later they've all got a furry coating. You have to throw them out. Yeah, no. But look, you're helping at some sort of charitable institution. They're good I guess, in the compost, so I'm sure. Now, Corey, that was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Remember, it's probably time you called Red Energy on 131806. You are grumpy. I'm grumpy, Caro, because I've I've said this before, but nobody seems to be listening to me. Can we please desist from using that term, reaching out? Oh. No, I think you've I think you've lost that battle. It's getting it's it's getting worse. So I did a deep dive on Google. When did reaching out? Deep dive's another one. <laughs> I actually love deep dive. I like in the weeds. I like deep dive. I don't like reaching out. Reaching out for the first article I can see from linguistics people when it became a, a real saying was 2014. So it's been with us for a while. But I received an email this week. I I bought a top online. And it arrived, it's gorgeous, it's linen, and it arrived in, uh, it was delivered by the man last week. And, the man. <laughs> and it's one size too big. And normally I would think, oh, I can't be bothered sending it back. I'll just put up with it or give it to someone or something. But I, th- I really like this top and I really love the colour. So I thought, no, I'm going to actually, 
My children tell me that it's so easy to send stuff back. So, so you I, reached out to the man? No, I didn't reach out to the man. <laughs> that makes it sound <laughs> disgusting. There's a little note there saying if you have any, if you would like to exchange and send back, you know, press this button, right? So I fill out, I'd like the other size and everything's great. I just want to do a swap. So the note comes through, dear Corey, thank you for reaching out to us to exchange your top. <laughs> so no, I'm not reaching out. I'm kind of just having a customer. <laughs> I'm just wondering. So, so then someone I know received, was contacted by a recruiter in the last couple of weeks. And the recruiter said, I would like to reach out to you to establish a connection to see whether there might be any synergies. I mean, for oh, God's you, sake. I did not. It's a job You've opportunity. I have not made that up. <laughs> it's a job opportunity. It's a job opportunity. It's not reaching out. What were the optics of that um, <laughs> of that email? I mean, really? Like, it's just, what is with reaching out? PR people, we've said this before, they use it a lot. Oh, dear me. So there's something a bit yucky too about the reaching out. I don't know. It just makes me feel really uncomfortable. I just don't want to be reached out to. I just like people to be, and also to be more direct with your language. Okay, anyway. you, I'm going to introduce this segment because you've got the first question. Um, and this is six quick questions for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. Why do you think 2024 could be seen by future historians as one of the most important turning point years in history? Well, a bit like all of those other turning point years, I think it could be, Caro, because a number of the world's most important democracies are having elections. And as we know, there's the rise and rise of disinformation and misinformation and lies. And somewhere in Russia, they tell us there is a whole, there are a whole bunch of trolls and people who are just, uh, this is their full-time gig, just getting themselves into the democratic process and shuffling things around. So, and democracy ends up being the big loser. So we have elections in Canada. We have elections in Mexico, Panama, United States, South Africa, Indonesia, India, Taiwan, right? It's getting a bit scary now. Um, Belgium, you might think, don't really care about Belgium. Belgium take a lot of refugees from um, from. African nations. Um, Bosnia and Herzegovina are having an election. Germany is having an election. Ireland. Um, the I think I think um, yeah, Great Britain is having an election in May. Turkey is having an election, and so is Spain. And Ukraine is supposed to be having an election. I don't know whether that's going ahead or not. So that I think that is a particularly interesting moment in time, and we should watch it closely. Don't you reckon? No doubt we will be. Yeah, really good point. Caro, do you expect Australia to become a republic in our lifetime? I'm beginning to think no. I just don't see... I mean, hopefully we will live well into our 90s, and I guess we're talking then well over 30 years, but if it's got, it takes a referendum to create a republic, and I just can't see how this referendum would ever get up. I mean, I think that the longer... Um, the biggest space put between the Queen's death and any potential referendum is going to obviously change um, people's mindset, I guess. I mean, Prince Charles, King Charles is only, you know, what is he, a year into the monarchy and mm. he hasn't even been crowned for a year. But um, I just, I'm beginning to wonder, I mean, who, which government would introduce a referendum, referendum into mm. Australia becoming a republic? 
it's going to take a really, really powerful message and a really brave leader to do it after watching the failure of this referendum. And I think there are just so many Australians who are not going to want to cut our ties with Britain. And it just seems, it now seems crazy to me that we're not a republic. It really does. But there don't you get are. Me started. And that's, that makes me very sad that you don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. I think you're probably right. What's your favourite Cox Plate memory? 2018. I went to the Cox Plate for the first time. So my son, Will, was then working for Godolphin and Godolphin had uh, actually won the Caulfield and Melbourne Cup that year. But um, Will said, oh, I can get you tickets to um, Mooney Valley. Oh, my goodness. We were actually in the owner's area. Which because, is, is oh. a great spot to be at Mooney Valley. <laughs> the Valley of Death, as we used to call pretty it. Pretty fantastic. So I took Coco as my date. So we zhuzhed up. We went out there and we met Mr. Will and we went and saw the Godolphin. Actually, Ben Bartle came second. Um, but that was the year that Winx won her fourth Cox Plate. And that was very exciting, Caro, because all of the winners, you know how there were all those husband and wife couples and those families involved. That was very, very exciting. And I will never forget that day as long as I live. I think it was probably the best day I've ever had at the races. And there have been a few. Um, Caro, where do you stand on the Mark Knight cartoon of Victorian Premier Jacinda Allen? First of all, looking forward to the Cox Plate on Saturday. Um, look, I, I thought it was outrageously bad. And Would you like to tell people who didn't well, Mark, see it? Well, uh, Mark Knight, the Herald Sun cartoonist, um, much revered cartoonist, um, did a cartoon early this week of the new premier of Victoria naked walking down a catwalk. It was sort of timed with Fashion Week. And it was, um, the theme, I guess, was the Emperor's New Clothes and the debacle of the Commonwealth Games decision. And what Jacinta said, what she knew, whatever, I don't know what he was trying to get at. But the message was completely lost in the really poor judgment shown not only by Mark, but also by the Herald Sun in running the cartoon. Now, he can argue until the cows come home that he depicts men naked or semi-naked. And Jacinta Allen's, um, the top bit and the bottom bit were pixelated or whatever you say. They were sort of, but it is just different and academics can explain why, to portray a naked woman, particularly a woman in a position of power, in that way is just so damaging. And when you um, look at the statistics of um, women as sex objects, women, um, violence against women, women and, and the crimes that are committed against women, sexual crimes, there, there were just so many reasons why this was all wrong. And it took me back to the days of... Um, Joan Kerner, our last and only other Victorian woman premier, being depicted in the in the polka dot dresses, which you couldn't explain why, but you just knew it was gender specific and completely it's wrong. Sexist. Um, it's been of course, completely sexist. Um, so the state Liberals have come out strongly um, against the cartoon. Or oh, that, that's good. Um, although I noticed not the Liberal leader, John Pesciuto, but anyway, the Greens also, Jacinta Allen made some really strong comments. And I, I just can't believe, I mean, with the Herald Sun after clickbait, I can't believe they let that one go through to the Keeper so soon into Jacinta Allen's becoming a leadership. I was really, really disgusted well, by it. Well, as somebody pointed out, Daniel Andrews was Premier for, what, 3,000 and something days or 2,000 and something days, never once did Mark Knight ever do a, a nudie 
cartoon of him. No, it was and a, Jacinta's been there for a month. It was poor, just so poor and really, really disappointing. So, Corrie, which news story this week left you perplexed? Snails are nibbling on the mail that is put in a post box in Loudoun in Cornwall, I think it is, and they're leaving all their marks on the envelopes and the Royal Mail says that the mollusks, mollusks the snails are being removed daily, but they are quote-unquote determined they're eating, apparently they're attracted to the glue that holds the envelope in shape. And there have been a lot of residents who were really angry. At first they were taking it out on the postie saying, you're opening our mail and looking at our letters. And then they realised that they had this snail issue actually in the letterbox. And for some reason, I don't know whether they're putting snail bait there or not. Maybe they're not allowed to. But they are, they love, that, like, like they do delphinium seedlings. Yep. <laughs> Don't ever yeah. put delphiniums near a patch of snails. That's like caviar. Um, but um, so the Royal Mail was approached for a comment. I, like, good luck to that spokesperson. <laughs> it sounds you know, disgusting. So the sign, there's been a sign on the post box saying, um, look, beware. There's, and, this, and it's quite a nice message in that English sort of way. Whilst you are very welcome to continue using this post box, we wanted to mention that your letter may not arrive without some nibble marks around the edges. And <laughs> according to one villager who did not want to be named, it was the council's fault because the overhanging vegetation on the wall has been encouraging the snails to invade. So they've complained to the local council, but nobody's come to do the big chop-chop. I mean, couldn't that village person just actually go back and get their clippers and do it themselves? But anyway. Throw around a few pellets. I suppose uh, it's a bit and, dangerous if there were and, and dogs And apparently in the it's area. been going on for a year. I mean, really? Um, it's been going on for a year and it's been discussed by the parish council as to what to do. So uh, residents can still post their mail at the village post office, but not at this particular one. So then... Cornwall, another part of Cornwall, the residents of Marazion weighed in and said that their post boxes had been sealed to keep the invaders out. So they've created some sort of... This sounds like an episode of The Vicar of Dibley, Corrie. <laughs> well, my first thought is, this is on the BBC website. So I was trying to get an update on Gaza yesterday and I came across this, you know, snails eating mail. I thought, oh, that's a joke. That sounds like a Julia Donaldson book. <laughs> Snail mail. <laughs> And I just thought, is this, is, this a slow, is this a slow news day? But then you look at the number, how many clicks it's getting. It was clearly a popular popular story, Garrett. Sometimes a minutiae of life is easier to deal with than the bigger picture. So true. Um, what's this week's amazing fact? Well, I won't spend too long on Sir Paul McCartney, but um, I went and saw him play last Saturday night at Marvel Stadium. It was an extraordinary concert and... It's the second time I've seen Paul McCartney live in Australia. The first time was when I think I was about 18 and I went with my friend Penny to the My Music Bowl to see Paul McCartney and Wings. There was Linda McCartney back I then. I was there too. Denny, it was a great, great concert. What struck me at that concert was um, could Linda McCartney, could she really play the piano or was she just standing there doing nothing? We realised later that she was a pianist, but she didn't seem to do an awful lot in that concert. I thought she played guitar as well. I didn't see her play guitar. Yeah, she definitely played guitar at some stage. Anyway, Linda's no longer with us. Um, Paul um, sings a beautiful song at his current, in his Australian performances to his wife, Nancy. And while he's singing it, it's, um, the word Valentine is in the title of the song. It's a beautiful song. And on the big screens, Johnny Depp and Natalie Portman are signing. 
doing sign language of the words of the song. There are all these little things that are in the concert, but I just find it extraordinary that um, my parents went and saw Paul McCartney and the Beatles, the Beatles at Festival Hall in 1964. Dad tells me he got tickets from the bloke who ran Festival Hall back then for John Wren. And mum has bad memories of it in that you just could not hear a thing. Everyone was screaming. I think they played for less than half an hour. It was just, I mean, a, a moment in history, but a disappointing moment in history. And I note Paul McCartney in the interview he did with 7.30 report, Sarah Ferguson, Ferguson said that the fans were terrible in the early days of the Beatles and in the early days of Wings, but largely supporters and fans have been just wonderful and that's why he keeps touring. He's 81, Corey. He played for three hours. He's been tour- So he was 1964 to 2023. That's 60, 59 years apart. I mean, he's clearly 81. Maybe Is I'm he? amazed. Your favourite song. Mm. I know it's one of your favourite songs and one of mine. Look, his voice isn't what it was. Let's be honest. And he struggled with some of the vocals, but that made it even more poignant. I mean, you would remember if you went to that um, My Music Bowl concert when he sang Blackbird on his own with a, just a guitar, acoustic guitar. He does it again. And it, it was, there were moments that you were, I was almost in tears. And that was one of them. He's, he's, he wrote a song for John Lennon. I've forgotten the name of it, but it talks about if you were here today, here today. You would probably say we were worlds apart, but it's a love song to John, basically. That was also very moving. And, you know, this um, extraordinary du- duo, duet he sings with John. So John's on the big screen. Peter Jackson, who did that amazing documentary you review- reviewed so well for us a couple of years ago, got back. Courtney Jane is telling us the name of the song, but you'll have here to... Today. Um, here today. It's such a beautiful song. Thank you, Courtney Jane. Um he does I've Got a Feeling. So John's on the big screen from the Let It Be sessions and Paul's singing now. And I think that's incredibly emotional. At one stage he brings out a ukulele that George Harrison gave him and he says George collected ukuleles and he starts playing something, George's probably George's greatest song for the Beatles, on the ukulele and then it breaks into the big, massive big van version. Wow. I mean, and he, he does... Three or four songs in the encore. He's, he sings for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which is just, oh. as he said, why did I agree to do this? It is so difficult. And they, they open up with Can't Buy Me Love. I mean, you just wow. can't believe, hey, Jude, obla dee, obla da. All the big wings hits, Live and Let Die, which is a massive light Were show. Were you f- too far away to feel the, feel the love? No. I, sometimes I have been at Marvel Stadium. Certainly I felt that way to a degree at ACDC and to a degree with George Michael. No, not George Michael. I had pretty good seats. Um, Robbie Williams, who I love. But no, it, the sound, that what they've done, you know, clearly over the years. And this this production is extraordinary. Extraordinary. Wow. He, um, he, he does a bit of the Joe Biden, you know, rolling his arms a bit and the peace signs and the thumbs up because he can't. <laughs> He doesn't. He does doesn't really dance. Does a bit of dancing. Two different pianos, guitar, acoustic guitar. A great old story about Jimi Hendrix and what he did when Sergeant Pepper's came out. Um, some. You, I mean, you could listen to him do just talk yeah, all night. Yeah, yeah. But he can still play instruments. Oh, his guitar and there's a great backup band. One of whom, Rusty, famous guitarist, appears in Deb Conway's um, autobiography. 
So that was interesting. Um, oh, no, it was an extraordinary show. What a show. great night. Well, you you text me to say, terribly sorry, can't come to dinner. We've just scored Paul McCartney tickets. I'm glad you went, Caro. Well, I gather you had a few pull out due to Paul McCartney, but I did talk to someone who did go to the barbecue and said it was a lovely night anyway. <laughs> yeah, you were missed, but look, you had a really good excuse. But interestingly, it was it, just final thing. You talked about how... They were so, and he says this in an interview. He was so happy when the the Peter Jackson film came out, and I think it was the success of the Got Back. Sorry, the Get Back documentary. This too is called Got Back. Um, that inspired Paul to keep performing, and he saw when Peter Jackson sent him all these, all the stuff he'd found. How. Paul wasn't the horrible boss who everyone hated bossing everyone around and John wasn't the miserable, you know, peevish, you know, genius. Um, it was much, so much happier than that. They were mates. Yeah. They were mates and they just they just hang out and they have a bit of a jam when they're not recording and they can read each other's mind and they can they know where they, when to change key and they just were each other's – it was just such a symbiotic relationship and Paul forgot that over the years. He rem- all he could remember was he was so tarnished by the breakup. Everybody said it was Linda and him and um, and all. John wrote that horrible song. How do you sleep? And yeah. and, and Paul sings this beautiful love song to him um, here today. It's just and some of the stuff he does. I mean, Golden Slumbers carry that weight. You can't believe that he would attempt that now. You know, one thing I did not is very thin, mm. very thin. Maybe skinniness is a secret to longevity. Who knows. Oh well, that but that was um, well for me. That was my amazing um, Paul McCartney. Yeah, that's fact. well, that's that's almost a very 60 nice... years apart from Festival yeah, Hall to Marvel that's Stadium. Great. Yeah, my mum and dad took Steve. I was too little, but they he they took him, and all my mother could remember they were sitting very politely in row G or something. And the minute, dong, you know that famous <laughs> like they were hard days yeah, night. Yeah, every girl all around them jumped up, and nobody could see anything, so yeah. they had to stand on their seats as well and couldn't have... hear either. <laughs> He did. I did run into my friend Jude's mother, who said, "I just wanted to hear a hard day's night," and that was. He, he did love me, do, but he didn't do hard day's night anyway. There you go. He did a lot. Well, what a lovely uh, aging, um, I suppose it is. But we've start, ended on a high note. We started on a high note with grandparents, and we've ended with Sir Paul McCartney. Um, episode two hundred and eighty-eight. That's done and dusted. Thank you to Red Energy. Thank you to Prince Wine Store. Don't forget princewinestore.com.au for the best wines in the world. And thank you, of course, to Cobram Olive Oil. And also thank you to Miss Courtney, Courtney Jane, our new producer. She's doing a ripper job. Keep it up. Good girl. She got to touch the Melbourne Cup yesterday, Caro. Courtney, mm. moment of greatness. <laughs> Hang around with us long Were enough, Were you at Courtney. breakfast with the stars, Courtney? We weren't there, Caro. No. We were at um, the Geelong Cup um, going live for Trackside and we were lucky enough to have a visit from the Cup with Greg Miles. So we had a great interview with him. Great. We love Greg. Greg's, Another, a, Greg's a friend to the pod. He's, he's, we've had him on. We've had a few of them. Um, Sorry, I just want to leave you with one comment. Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. We love hearing from you guys, so join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Don't Shoot Pod or email us at feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au.
And if you'd like to support the show, the best way is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are really appreciated. And of course, please support our partners who make Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast possible. Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil. Grown, harvested and first cold pressed in Northern Victoria. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. PrinceWineStore.com.au